Genesis chapter 1, and if you will look in verse number 27, we have God speak about the relationship of men and women. Actually, verse 26, let's begin there. God said, let us, the Trinity, plural, not me, let us, make man in our image after our likeness and let them, mankind, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And so God created man in his image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, both in the image of God. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful. First commandment he ever gave to mankind. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowls of the air, over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Chapter 2 and verse 23. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. I especially call your attention to the word cleave, which means that two things come together in such a manner that they become like they're only one. And then, to further enhance that thought, they shall be one flesh, one, not a man and a woman, but in the sight of God, one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed because they were innocent. They had not sinned. When sin came in, their innocency disappeared. In fact, they said uh, when they had sinned, They hid themselves from God, if you remember, and asked for clothing. And so it's been very much a part of our nature ever since that we wear clothing. Martin Luther said, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point where the world and the devil are attacking at the moment, I am not confessing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And where the battle rages today across Western culture, and especially in the United States, is in the area of gay marriage. That's where the world and the devil are attacking at the moment. And Luther said, if I won't engage that, if I remain silent and cowardly on that, I am not confessing Christ, because where the battle rages on that very point, there the loyalty of the soldier is tested. So this is a test. It's a test for me. Am I willing to proclaim the truth regardless of what people think? By the way, it's a test for you. You may not be as public a figure as I, but on the other hand, in your life, it's a test. 
Do you believe what God taught about marriage or do you not? Because if you are a Christian, Scripture informs your opinions, not the culture around you. Tuesday past, April 28th, the Supreme Court of the United States heard oral arguments for two and a half hours. The issue involved legally whether states have the right to regulate marriage because that right has been taken away by a number of court decisions recently. Now I think 34 or 36 states have now uh, legalized gay marriage within their state. Now, only uh, I think 11 or maybe it's 14 of those states, very few of the states, have voted for that. In most cases, it has been imposed upon them by the courts. Were it put to a vote in many, in fact, most, if not all those states, it would not be approved. But the courts are imposing this on us. So this is going to the court for the court to determine, does the government, the federal government, have the right to take away the rights of states to regulate marriage as they choose? But the implications are profound. Perhaps the most profound thing that we've dealt with in our generation Because if the court comes down with its decision in June, which is when it will be announced, if the court approves gay marriage in this country in every state and takes it away from our states to make that decision, it will ultimately involve a complete reordering of all of society. If you think that it's just going to involve who can perform a marriage ceremony, think again. This will be one of the most profound things even the judges in their quarters talked about it this past week. And the implications of it even seemed to stun many of them as they contemplated making this decision. Chief Justice Roberts, for example, said, quote, people feel very differently about this when they have a chance to vote on it as opposed to having it forced on them by the courts. So he acknowledged that the majority of people in America do not want this, despite what you hear from some uh, liberal news channels. Justice Scalia said the approval of same-sex marriage would pave the way to legalize state laws against polygamy and incest. Then he noted, and here's my point I made a while ago, only 11 state legislatures have voted for it. Justice Alito said to the the attorney, a woman who was representing the pro-gay marriage side, he, he said to her, what would prevent if we approve this and take away the regulations of the states to govern marriage, what would prevent four lawyers from getting married. And she tried to blow it off, but he held her feet to the fire. He said, I want to, you know, tell me. And she she didn't have much of an answer for that, obviously. Justice Breyer, who usually votes as a liberal, 
And still we think he'll probably vote for this, said, and I quote, man-woman marriage has been with us for millennia. Why should this court say, we know better? And later, one of the justices said, why do you think nine people have the right to change a practice that has been successful for thousands of years? And so, it appeared to me in the comments that the justices themselves were contemplating the gravity and the implications of this, that it will, in fact, create unintended consequences that we really don't know where this will go ultimately. So at stake is the very institution of marriage and family as practiced for 6,000 years of human history. I've read to you four verses of scriptures from the book of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, which I would say those verses describe God's design for marriage. So if you're taking notes with me, that would be point number one, God's design. What is God's design for marriage? What does God say that marriage is to be? What is the biblical model, pattern, template? What does God say marriage is to be? And throughout history, we've used something that, and I'm going to show you two views of it, the conjugal view of marriage. And that's not a view, uh, that's not a word we use often. It comes from the idea of a conjunction, the piece of the little, uh, uh, the words that we use to connect sentences, and and but and so on, which means to put together. So the conjugal view of marriage is that God ordained marriage to be a male and a female put together, a conjugal view of marriage. That's the biblical view, the traditional view. That's the view that I hold, and I believe you do. It comes from two words there that are used in the Scriptures that we read, the word cleave that I pointed out, which has the idea of putting two things together, like if you, if you glued together two boards, and then you nail those same two boards together, and those board, boards so strongly adhered together that if you tried to separate the boards, the, woods would, the wood would tear because of that powerful glue. Then you have the idea of cleaving, cleaving, something that is put together and held together so strongly that it would destroy the individual parts if you sought to separate them. The other word is one flesh, one flesh, that they shall be, the male and the female, one flesh. Keep in mind that in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 5 and 6, Jesus quoted that same passage from Genesis. So we don't need to look it up. Jesus just quoted it. He added one little thing. Therefore, what God puts together, don't let any man put asunder. Don't don't let any man separate it. And so he made a strong, strong case even on, uh, as opposed to... uh, a divorce. Now, so the heart of marriage is the sexual union, the conjugal view, the cleaving, the one flesh. It's the sexual union. The heart of marriage is the sex act. Can I say it any more 
powerfully and still retain my dignity up here. But that's the heart of marriage. And if you remove that, you've changed the whole definition of what marriage is about. And and to prove my point to you, I want you to turn to the book of Hebrews. It'll be worth our time for you to slip over to the book of Hebrews with me. I read this in the marriage ceremony when I hold a marriage. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number four, the conjugal biblical one flesh cleaving idea of marriage has to do with the sexual experience of marriage. Chapter 13 of the book of Hebrews, marriage is honorable in all. And the bed, referring to the marriage bed, which has become a legal term used by lawyers in court, the marriage bed, the marital bed, is undefiled. Meaning that God says, within the marriage bond, I approve of a sexual relationship. Coming together, the male and the female, this one flesh cleaving uh, act. The creator designed the male body. The creator designed the female body. He designed them to be complementary of one another in order that they could come together in this conjugal act, that they could come together and become one flesh to cleave together. And so we think of marriage as being the absolute and ultimate form of, uh, of intimacy, of sharing the deepest feelings and, and experiences that only a man and a woman can share with that. But he also added something. There's something else implied in that fact that the core of marriage is the sexual union. And the point is that that, uh, that act is a unique act in all of human experience because it has the ability to create new life, to reproduce. And implied in marriage is this idea of reproduction of children, if you will. And so this unity is not possible in any other relationship. I'm sorry, and I don't want to be crude, but gay marriage can never be conjugal marriage. The parts don't fit. It's not the way that God made. They're not complementary. It's mechanical and twisted, and so we refer to that as perversity. That's why we use that term. But marriage is even more than this. That's not all that it is. It begins, that's the heart, the core of it. If you don't have that, you probably are not going to have a lasting marriage. And I can prove that to you from history and from legal experience and from common sense. For many years, when one or the other parties, for whatever reason, would not engage in that act, that conjugal act, we annulled the marriage. And particularly the Catholic Church would annul marriages. We don't do it in Baptist churches because we let the court do that. But that's a legal process, an annulment of a marriage. And the primary reason that marriages have been and were annulled is because the marriage was never consummated. We use that term. You know what that means. That the parties never 
involve themselves in what is the core act of the marriage relationship. But it's more than that. It's more than physical. It is also emotional. Because in marriage, we find a bond of affection, of companionship, and of intimacy. And young people, the reason we preach so hard and teach you over and over and over, you ought to wait until marriage, is because we know this. We know those who counsel, those who pastor, those who understand and work with people, we understand this, that when two people have sex, that there forms an emotional bond. I can almost sometimes, not always, but sometimes I'm a, I can almost look at a couple and tell you if they've been intimate already. And so can other practiced counselors. Because there is a bond of affection and intimacy. We call it companionship. All of that begins to accrue out of that marital bed, if you will. But there's another thing that marriage is, and marriage is a spiritual union. It is a physical, conjugal union. It is an emotional union of companionship and intimacy and sharing at the deepest level of human affection. It's a spiritual union. 2 Corinthians 6 and 14 says to a Christian, do not marry an unsaved person. The first question we ask people when they come here for marriage is we say to them, are you saved? Are you saved? If both parties are not Christians, I say it to you in love and kindness, but I can't perform your marriage because the Bible says, be not unequally yoked together. Don't be tied together with someone who is not a believer, because you don't share a spiritual union. You will never have even fully that, that emotional union that you will have if, in fact, you are, uh, if you're both Christians. One of you can't worship God and the other not worship God and have the closeness and the intimacy, the meaning in your marriage. You can't do it. So it's a spiritual union. We have a mutual faith in God. In our spiritual life, we have the same ideals, the same moral values accrue because we read out of the same book and worship the same God. He doesn't have one set of moral values and she doesn't have one set of moral values. These are shared moral values that come out of our faith experience out of our common belief system. So marriage is a physical union. Marriage is an emotional union. Marriage is a spiritual union. Marriage is an exclusive and permanent union. Exclusive and permanent. The idea of one man and one woman for life. We call that monogamous marriage. One, one man, one woman. For life. And so Christianity has always taught that because the Bible teaches that. Do you know what's an interesting thing? That in much of the world they still practice arranged marriages where that you have uh, the family picks out the bride for the young man and they work out the details and the arrangements. And many times they've never even seen each other until the day 
I've, I've read the account of an Orthodox Jewish girl who the family lived in New York City, and the man, the bride, or the, or the groom, and, and, and the girl lived somewhere else. I think she lived in Israel. And the families got together and arranged the marriage, had a meeting in New York City one day, and the girl flew from Tel Aviv to New York City and had never even seen her bride. And you here, and even I have a little problem with that, and I said, oh, my soul, will that work? Do you know what? That has proven through the years to work better than the marriages of people who one are saved and one is unsaved. You can't believe that, can you? You look at me in shock with uh, dismay. I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change the facts how you look at me. Arranged marriages have a better record than you would possibly believe in our world today because you know what? They emphasize the right things. Now, I'm not advocating for it. Don't, don't grab your daughters and run out the door or something here, but you, you know what I'm trying to say to you. Following God's pattern works. Even when the romantic side of it that Americans are so conditioned to is, is left out of the whole process. It's exclusive. One man, one woman for life. And implied in marriage is something else in conjugal marriage, is the idea of family and children. Replenish the earth. Be fruitful. Multiply. And you and I have been watching on the television this horrible, horrible situation in Baltimore, Maryland. And I've listened and I haven't heard anybody make a whole lot of sense until last night I heard one African-American lady who has studied these problems extensively. And the woman said, let me tell you what nobody is saying, and here's the problem. 73% of these young people are coming from single-parent families. In a majority of the cases, they never knew their daddy because there wasn't one They're growing up on the street without any moral, spiritual leadership at all. And so when they destroy property, it's not a big problem to them. So there's a moral reality to marriage, a moral reality. For conjugal marriage, marriage God's way. It's good for the children. It's good for the community. It's good for the nation. It's God's design. But people want to revise it. I call it revisionist marriage, point number two. Or the common term is gay marriage. Where the basis of marriage is changed from a comprehensive union, physical, spiritual, emotional, where the basis of marriage is changed from a comprehensive union to simply an emotional attachment, a romantic idea. And instead of the total unity of men and women, male and female, whose temperaments and bodies complement each other, to a feeling-based 
emotional bond, if you will. Our president ran for office in 2007 or 8, whatever it was, saying that he believed that marriage was to be between a man and a woman. But our president changed during his first term. And in 2012, just before the election, he came out very much pro-gay marriage. And here's a quote from him. He illustrates my point. A person, the president said, should be free to marry whomever they love. Why are you for gay marriage? Because a person should be free to marry whomever they love. The justice the other day alluded to what the problem with that statement is. Instead of a comprehensive, physical, emotional, spiritual, permanent, exclusive bond between a male and a female, he opened the doors to virtually everything with that statement. A person should be free to marry whomever they love. In other words, love, a feeling of attachment in these romantic relationships is the basis on which we now build the marriage. And here's my question. And here was the question of the justice implied. What if I love more than one person? So are we we going to strike down biblical conjugal marriage and now accept polygamy as a society? What if I love my sister? There are laws against incest. They're there for good reasons. But that definition opens the door. What if I love two men or women, a group marriage? And before you say, he's getting really out there, let me show you a picture. This is the first truple. Truple. Couple. T-R-O-U-P-L-E. Triple. Put the words together. A truple. I, I was unfamiliar with the word. It wasn't in my dictionary even. Three Thai men, that's off the internet, got married, and there's lots of information on it, on Valentine's Day past, February 14th, 2015. There they are. So once you make the basis of marriage, people ought to be free to marry whomever they love, you've opened the doors to all kinds of exotic ideas. And we've corrupted marriage in every way that the human mind can corrupt it. Fornication is a corruption of God's design for the man and woman in marriage. Don't think it isn't. Cohabitation. We just won't bother with the marriage. It's just a piece of paper. No, it isn't. And we'll just live together as man and wife. No, it corrupts God's design. Adultery corrupts God's design. Polygamy corrupts God's design. Incest corrupts God's design. Gay marriage corrupts God's design. I'm being equally 
I'm denouncing each of those forms equally, if you will notice. I'm not picking on the gays here. I'm telling you, the only way God approves this relationship is in a marriage bond. And everything else, God, not Bill Monroe, calls it sin. But this destroys permanency as well, because if the basis of marriage is emotional attachment, then when the emotional fulfillment begins to wane, well, then the marriage will end. It also destroys the revisionist marriage, destroys the reproductive function, because we don't have God's design. We have tinkered with nature. And so now we have a hybrid marriage, and hybrids do not reproduce, as you know. It destroys the exclusiveness of the marriage bond. Male and female created he them. It expands that to other possibilities and other options. Who and what is behind all this? If you sit now one evening on television and you watch television, you will see either an ad that promotes this kind of thing or you will see a program that has it as a theme. It's as if half the people in the country are homosexuals today. The truth is 2%, 2%, not 10 or 12%, as the gay lobby would say, 2% of the people in America today are homosexuals. But this is being, we're being subjected to an absolute barrage of propaganda that's being shoved down our throats to our children in our schools, to the entertainment and the media and the social media, Most of the victories for gay marriage have not come from our legislators. Very few, in fact, have, 11. But the rest of them, almost 30, have come from a liberal judge sitting on a bench somewhere who signs an order and requires the whole state to comply and all the people in it. It's such a travesty of of what we call a democracy or a Republican way of life. And it's being driven not by the majority of the people, but by a small number of what I call the cultural elites, educators, mostly university professors, the weird kind that we all have one of them, at least when we went through school, educational elitists, some teachers, progressive, ultra-liberal politicians, Judges from the liberal side, journalists, entertainers, and media people, mostly entertainment is driving it for our young people. I, I don't know of very many entertainers who are not pro-gay marriage right now. And yet they're influencing our young people, our children, with this steady barrage of propaganda that if you oppose this, you're on the wrong side of history. What are the implications of it? Well, as I've already said, the Bible teaches, first of all, that all 
Sexual practice outside marriage is sinful. Fornication, cohabitation, adultery, incest, bestiality. Jesus even raised the level so high, he said, if you look on a woman and lust after her in your mind, you've committed adultery. So he raised the bar even to our desires. And while we don't talk about that much, every one of us who is healthy knows that every day we have to deal with lustful thoughts that come because it's in our face everywhere we go in this culture. Things that other cultures would consider to be totally uh, unfit for human consumption or shoved down our throat through the advertising industry and through other media. We know that homosexuality has been present with us from the early dawn of history. I don't have time to read it, but read Genesis 19, the first seven or eight verses when you get home. A city called Sodom and Gomorrah had such a high percentage of homosexual activity that they were totally, it had taken over in the city. And a just man, Lot, went there to live because of business opportunities. Watch out for that, that you don't sell your soul for your business opportunity. And Lot did just that. He went and sat in the tent at Sodom, or sat in the gate of the tent at Sodom, meaning he was the mayor probably of the city. And while there, two angels came to visit him. And when the men of that city saw them, they sought to take them out and have gay relations with them. And they would have, except that God came and rescued those two angels who had come in the bodies of men. Lot, the mayor, looks at that homosexual mob knocking on his door, and here's what he says. Oh, my brethren, do not so wickedly. Finally, he had the courage to stand up and call it wickedness. Do you have that kind of courage? To call wicked what God calls wicked. Look at the book of Jude. You're in Hebrews maybe still. Just go over to the book of Jude a few pages next to the book of Revelation. Let me tell you what God says about it. Verse 7, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set for an example. And what is their example? They suffered the vengeance of eternal fire for their actions. In Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 22, you know this one. It refers to homosexuality as an abomination. In Romans chapter 1 and verses 26 and 7, the homosexual actions are called shameful, debased, and unnatural. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 and 10, it says those who practice such things are, quote, unrighteous. And then it further adds, and if you're unrighteous, you will not go to heaven, and it adds a number of other sins there with it. Moses' law prohibited cross-dressing. Now the new and big 
thing. This thing keeps on taking further and further dimensions, going further and further into perversity. Now the big thing is transvestitism, transvestism, where the Bruce Jenner deal, I'm really a woman trapped in a man's body. You can't prove that from the Bible. God made them male and females, only two things he recognizes. And in Deuteronomy 22 and 5, God says, a man should not dress like a woman, and a woman should not dress like a man. And to portray yourself as the opposite sex is, again, part of this abomination. And now, in several states, a man who believes himself to be a woman can go to the women's restroom with the little girls. How tragic, how tragic, how tragic. Now, here's what I want to tell you. To approve gay marriage is to legitimize homosexual activity. I don't know what side of the issue you're on. I say it to you as kindly as I know how. I don't care. I didn't, fa- I didn't take a vote before I preached today, and I won't. But to approve gay marriage, you have to legitimize the actions of homosexuals. And I want to tell you, morally, morally, love can never be used as a license to legitimize a behavior that God calls an abomination. When people come in to me and they're having a big marital blow up, and I've had about 40 of these in my life. Well, I was unfaithful to my wife or my husband, pastor, because you just don't understand. We're in love, referring to the third party. We don't allow that. We don't legitimize that. Are we going to legitimize homosexual activity because we're in love? Come on. Common sense and reason and the Bible come together in a very strong relationship if you will just let it. Why the vehemence of the gay movement against people preaching like I'm preaching today? And this, you, don't, you may not think this. This is hard for me. Ask my wife what I went through to come and deliver a message. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know who's going to get mad and leave me that I love. I don't know who's going to pick at the church next Sunday when this plays on television. Why the vehemence? Romans chapter 1, please. Romans chapter 1. There's a whole group of preachers in the country today basically have said, we're not going to address it because it'll cost us people. I go back to what Luther said. Wherever the world and the devil are attacking is the point that the soldier has to be true. This is the point. How could I be silent about what the 
that which the Bible is so clear on, my friends. Romans chapter 1. Here's why the vehemence, the hatred towards those who oppose. Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. I want you to circle a phrase in your Bible. Hold the truth. If you read that in the NIV or the ASV or any, any of the number of the new translations, they won't use the term hold the truth because they, they, they go to the definition of the word. Who hold the truth. And the word hold there doesn't mean just hold it in your hand like I'm holding my Bible. It means to suppress it, to repress it, as a psychologist would say. To know that something is wrong and to repress it and hold it down. To hold it down. And so the Bible says that everybody has this intuitive knowledge that homosexuality is wrong. And that's in verse 19. That which may be known of God is manifest in them. And God has showed it to them, this unrighteousness. And check the context. It's primarily speaking of homosexuality. And so people know the truth. They suppress it. They repress it. If you're going to do that, you don't deal with it anymore on a logical basis. You deal with it with a massive attack on your opponent. And so those of us who oppose this, and we try to do it lovingly. I'm trying to do it lovingly right now, but I I have no option but to speak the truth. Listen to me. If you're going to suppress the truth of God, the only thing you can do is massively attack your opponent. And so we're called haters, and we're called bigots, and we're called homophobes because there is no way it can be defended. You can't defend the indefensible, but you can attack the person who carries the message. And with support from the Obama administration, this has become the new fascism in America. You know that. We're shredding our First Amendment freedom of religion rights. The immigration authorities now have changed the oath that new immigrants take when they are sworn in. It used to say freedom of religion, and now they say freedom of worship. Meaning, you can practice your religion inside the walls of your church on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, but you can't practice freedom of religion out there on the street. There's some limits on it. Ask the couple who ran the pizza parlor in Indiana how this reaction, this massive attack comes. Ask the woman who was the florist in Oregon who would not provide the flowers at a gay wedding. Ask the, bakery, the family who ran the bakery in California who would not bake the cake for a gay wedding reception. You'll find out the vehemence of the gay movement. 
What will be the position of the church? Time Magazine quotes the number of evangelicals, believe it or not, who are saying, well, we're this close. We're going to have to accept it. The tide is running in their favor. We, are, we have to accept what the world accepts. I personally believe that whatever the court rules, it won't matter either way. Just like abortion, it will be the most divisive thing that's happened in the country in a long time. No matter how it rules, if it rules in favor of gay marriage, though I think we who are on this side will begin to face a growing persecution in the country. We're already seeing it as illustrated by the owners of the pizza parlor, the bakery, and the florist. So what is the church going to do? I can tell you, if this is passed and we preach like I'm preaching, we very well may lose our tax-exempt status. And one person has already calculated that if we lose it, 50% of the churches in America will close within a year. So the implications are pretty profound. But it goes so far beyond the church because this really involves an attack on our heritage and the traditions of Western civilization and the destruction of the churches. Our time-honored heritage and way of life that's worked the best for the most for so long. Young people, I'm particularly concerned about you. I hear that so many of you are accepting of this. You have to decide. I understand the peer pressure. I understand the social media. I understand the media, the movies, the music, and the peers. And I love you with all my heart, but I have a message for you. It's from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer's the guy who died under Adolf Hitler when they hung him with a piano string because he tried to get rid of Hitler. He's one of the great heroes of the faith. What people don't understand is he had a Ph.D. in theology when he was 19 years old, one of the most brilliant men of his generation. And he was a professor who taught theology at the University of Bonn or Berlin. But Bonhoeffer was a youth worker. On the weekends in the churches, he ministered to young people, teenagers. He loved them. He went to youth camps in Germany, pre-war Germany. And Bonhoeffer died, as I said, as a martyr. Before he died, he wrote this. Because the youth were all going over to Hitler and supporting Nazism. Here's his words, quote, The future of the church is not youth. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We want you. We want you to support our values. But we don't, we're not dependent on youth. We're dependent on Jesus Christ. It is the task of youth not to reshape the church. And in many places, they've done that. It is the task of the youth not to replace, to reshape the church, but to listen to the Word of God. And it is the task of the church not to capture the youth, but teach and proclaim the Word of God. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.
Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of the Baptist Temple Hour. If you would like a copy of today's program, send your request and payment to the Florence Baptist Temple, P.O. Box 12809, Florence, South Carolina, 29504. Be sure to include today's date and the title of today's message. And please allow two to three weeks for delivery. For more information about the Florence Baptist Temple, visit our website at www.fbt.org. We also want to extend to you an invitation to join us in person. Sunday school starts every week at 9 a.m. and the service begins immediately following at 10.30. Once again, the church family at the Florence Baptist Temple wants to thank you for tuning in this week. and We hope to see you next week for another edition of the Baptist Temple Hour.